1: Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: As the Elizabethan settlement created the Church of England as some sort of halfway house between Protestantism and Catholicism, some English Catholics felt forced to leave England. In exile, they plotted to save England from the blight of heresy and the evils of the Elizabethan regime by using foreign pressure to remove the Queen and re-establish Catholicism. How did they do it? They weaponized books. English Catholics writing during the dramatic years of the 1580s and 1590s urged Philip II of Spain to invade England and even to consider murdering Elizabeth I. They rewrote history to argue that incest was at the root of the Church of England, and they called for a holy war. This is a sordid story about a group of men and women clawing at what tools they had to promote warfare and political sabotage. To tell the tale, I'm joined by Professor Freddy Cristobal Dominguez. He is an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas, and he's the author of Radicals in Exile, English Catholic books during the reign of Philip II, which was published by Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. Professor Dominguez, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really interested to talk to you about your work. We often hear about English Protestant exiles in Mary I's reign, and we hear much less so about English Catholic ones under Elizabeth I. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, I think part of it is that England over time became dominantly Protestant in its various guises, and so the connection with the Protestant exiles and the cultures that they were part of on the continent, especially in Germany, fed into that Protestant milieu, that Protestant theology, etc., in a way that clearly Catholicism has a different relationship with England over time, the sort of end of Catholicism as the state religion, and so on made it so that the work of English Catholic exiles was pushing against a certain current. And so while the Protestant exiles fed into a dominant culture, English Catholic exiles were increasingly part of a minority. And so I think that's where that imbalance probably is.
2: And I suppose it tells us something about the subsequent history of England and the subsequent story that got told, which associated Catholicism and xenophobia.
3: That's right. So I think going back to the 16th century, we have a narrative of Catholicism as a kind of marginal aspect of English culture and an aspect of English culture that was increasingly tied to continental Catholic, continental forces, the papacy in Rome, and importantly, Catholicism in Spain, Spain as the great empire of the time and the great enforcer of Orthodox Catholicism. At least that's the line that was taken in England and other Protestant countries. And accurately, because the Spanish crown thought of itself as an enforcer of orthodoxy. And so that these exiles were in Spain and lands attached to Spain. And obviously Rome certainly fed into this idea that there was a Catholic fifth column that could be awakened by these exiles and those forces that supported them mainly the Spanish. And then that narrative, I think, is a kind of a dominant strand in English culture through the 19th century, in many ways, has the nation and Protestantism being something intertwined. So I think there's that long narrative going back to the 16th century.
2: Now, these exiles you call Spanish Elizabethans, could you introduce us to some of them like William Allen and Robert Persons?
3: First, the term Spanish Elizabethan is not my own. It's a Jesuit historian based in Fordham in New York, a long time ago, used that term and it's gone out of use and I'm trying to revive it to a certain extent. And it was a group of men, mostly men, who were on the continent and sought the support of the Spanish in their efforts to re-Catholicize England. So some of the more colorful characters, the character, the personality, I think the dominant one would be Robert Persons, who ended up in Rome in the 1570s and he was at Oxford before that and he was a difficult character even then, it seems, and was involved in local controversies. He was a tutor. There might have been some embezzling going on. That part of his history is kind of shrouded in mystery. But when he gets to the continent, he relatively quickly is influenced by the society of Jesus, by Jesuits. And so he becomes part of that spiritual milieu. And he becomes allied with William Allen, who had come to the continent in the first wave of exile back in the early 1560s. And William Allen's project aligns with Robert Persons because Persons is interested in recatholicizing England. And increasingly realizes that one of the ways that this might be possible is by attaching himself to the Spanish court. Robert Persons is, along with another Jesuit, Edmund Campion, perhaps a more famous Jesuit, the head of the first official mission to England in 1580 1581. Edmund Campion is known as a great orator, he's recognized as such in Elizabethan England. He leaves England in the 1570s, eventually ends up in Europe and spends a long time in Bohemia, where he is a scholar, a theologian, where he's exercising his rhetorical skills. He is, it seems, uh, reluctant to go on this mission in 1580-81. He's being called to Rome, and of course at a certain point you can't say no, so (laughs) he arrives in Rome. Robert Persons is waiting there, they go off to England and they make a stop in Geneva and apparently have some theological disputations with local Protestant theologians. They both make it to England and there, their two stories part ways to an extent. Edmund Campion is caught by the English authorities. He is subject to, I would say the equivalent of a show trial, because the Elizabethan regime obviously wants to stamp out what they see as rebellious and treasonous activity being carried out by English Catholic missionaries, because the Elizabethan line is that these men are not simply trying to care for the souls of Catholics, but they're trying to inspire, cause rebellion. Parsons and Campion are aware that this is what they will be accused of. And so Campion actually writes a short treatise defending himself against these accusations and calling for formal disputation, debate to go on publicly between Protestants and Catholics, between himself and Protestant authorities. In a way, the Elizabethan regime could have foregone that and said, well, you're treasonous and we're going to sort of, by legal means, execute you. But the regime thought that that would not be a prudent move, which tells us something about the kind of importance of these Catholic missionaries in the imagination of the regime, and their sense that, you know, their missionizing activities could prove to be successful, and thus the lies and the theological falsities of these men needed to be exposed publicly. In any case, Edmund Campion ultimately, after this kind of show trial, is executed. Meanwhile, Persons is hiding all over the place and eventually leaves England back to the continent never to return to England again. And so there is kind of a storyline that has been traditional, especially among Catholic historians, that Edmund Campion, who became a saint, is the saintly figure who gave his life for the cause, while Robert Persons ran away, essentially, to then continue his efforts to destroy the Elizabethan regime. And in fact, the narrative is not altogether wrong in the sense that Edmund Campion, of course, was a martyr from the Catholic perspective and persons did go on to have a very complicated religious, spiritual, and political career on the continent. He eventually makes his way to Spain in 1588, sort of seminal year in the history of Anglo-Spanish relations, the year of the Armada, and he really presses the Spanish monarchy to continue its efforts against the English even after the failure of the Armada to sort of relaunch subsequent armadas. And in many ways, he became one of the main propagandists for the Spanish monarchy, defending the Spanish monarchy against the aspersions of Protestants, and particularly the English, the Elizabethan regime. And so he's always had this mark of infamy in some quarters because he's a spiritual man, or supposedly a spiritual man who overstepped that spiritual boundary and then became a politico, a politician, Kind of a nasty word. And so one of the things that I find interesting about his story is that he became kind of a bete noir within the English sphere. His name evoked this idea of the treasonous Catholic, the unnatural. Subject is the word that they often use. Meanwhile, he became kind of a heroic figure, might be too strong a word, but an esteemed figure in the Catholic world as one of the defenders of the faith.
2: And I suppose there's very much a sense that politics and religion are absolutely intertwined at this time. I mean, his mission as he comes to see it is something that's political, but it's also perhaps at root religious. It's the pursuit of a holy war.
3: That's right. I think Robert Persons and many others around him see these religion and politics as inextricable on two levels, I think. One, Persons essentially says, because the Elizabethan regime sees us as treasonous, that our very presence there is necessarily political, because we're involved in Actions that are being perceived as political and that are being treated as political and so we can't extricate ourselves from that dynamic Apart from that people like persons Consider the state as a secular entity to be sure but one that cannot be separated completely from True faith as they would describe it for the kingdom To survive, it had to be a holy kingdom. It had to be run by men and women of deep faith who were defenders of that true faith that is, from their perspective, Catholicism.
2: And one of the ways that they are going to defend this, as you look at in your book, is through what they write or what they publish, not necessarily having written themselves. Can we have a think together about some of these works I'm really struck by one that I'd like to ask you a few questions about, actually. The first full-length Catholic history of England's break with Rome, published in the mid-1580s, not accidental timing. So let's talk about its author, Nicholas Sander, if you will, and what he meant to achieve when it was written.
3: Nicholas Sander is another of these figures coming out of Oxford and emerging on the continent as a major international figure, a writer of huge theological tomes, but perhaps most famously, his History on the Origins and Progress of the English Schism, which he publishes in 1585. And this is where the story really becomes very international. Things are heating up between England and Spain. There's a lot of tension that really leads to the Spanish Armada. But there's also a religious war going on in France in this period. And there are religious tensions in the Netherlands. So the European scene is boiling with these religious tensions and religious warfare. And so when Sander writes this book, he's writing for an international audience. He's writing it in Latin. And he is telling the story of the English Reformation. It's the first full-length Catholic treatment of that phenomenon, going back to Henry VIII. And he's telling it as a warning. He's saying, let's look at what happened in England. England was once a pristine, flourishing Catholic kingdom. And then one evil ruler, essentially, came to town, rose to the throne, and essentially demolished it all. And why did he do this? He did this because he had tyrannical inclinations, right? He sort of acted on whim, and to underline, how dastardly and fundamentally evil Henry VIII was, Sanders promoted a story about Elizabeth's parents. This line was that Henry VIII had actually had sexual relations with Anne Boleyn's mother, and that Anne Boleyn was actually the result of that relationship. So in fact, Henry VIII was married to his daughter. And so, Clearly, that kind of relationship will produce a horrible creature that was Elizabeth I. And it says something about Henry VIII's own evil demonic character. And so that was kind of a warning to kings everywhere, Catholic or Protestant, that should one entertain the idea of Protestantism, one was really engaging with the Satanic. Henry VIII is emblematic of what an evil monarch is. And one of the central problems with the rise of Henry VIII, a man who was recognized by Catholics at the time as being very problematic, evil, tyrannical, etc., was that Catholics did not push back. The Pope was reticent, Catholic monarchs on the continent essentially allowed Henry to do what he wanted to do. And this was a bad thing because essentially England became Protestant, or at least Protestant forces took over England and oppressed Catholics on the ground. And so the the line essentially was see, this is what happened with Henry VIII. This is exactly what's happening with Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I is this evil, demonic spawn of kind of satanic forces that is allowed to essentially have her way without any intervention, and this will only lead to further the expansion of Protestantism in England and on the continent, and the pain and suffering of Catholics. So by writing this history of the English Reformation, English Protestantism, Sander was trying to sound a warning to those on the continent that were reticent to engage fully with what the ideal outcome from Sanders' perspective, the conquest of England and the re-Catholicization. Of England.
2: It's so fascinating that to create this image of the Protestant church and the Protestant queen as satanic, he goes back to create this kind of origin myth of her birth. And when it comes to describing her character, he also adds another flavour, which is relentless misogyny, isn't it?
3: Right, absolutely she is the exemplary of a woman who is given to her lusts her own desires she is intent on overturning the norms and rules of society to take for herself a position she shouldn't by nature be able to take that is the head of the church something that is reserved for men and this description is made in contradistinction with good queens Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's wife, as one of these exemplary women who refused to bow down to Henry VIII's desires, and in thus doing, playing the role of the good wife who tries to instill in her husband morality. And so Elizabeth is the complete opposite of that. She is actively leading to this horrific outcome of Protestant England. So yes, the misogyny is very, very intense when we get to the section on Elizabeth and her evil doings as they would construe them. Did you know
2: that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets,
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yonaga.
2: Flander himself had died in 1581. So who is it who's deciding in the mid-1580s that the moment has come to print this book of his? And in fact, not once, but actually three times.
3: It's unclear. The book is kind of shrouded in mystery. the 1585 version may have been published in northern France, may have been published in Germany. So even on that level, we know relatively little. Though it seems quite clear that Robert Persons and William Allen, who I mentioned earlier, had established the English College in Rome and would eventually become a Cardinal of the Church, were involved in publishing it. And they were doing that, I think, at that particular moment because they saw a kind of opening. They saw that the Spanish monarchy was becoming more invested in dealing with Protestantism on a continental level. And so it was the time where a book like this might inspire further action. And that's what's key about these textual interventions, these books that are being published, is that they're thought to be active endeavors. It's not simply you know, a few men sitting around writing an interesting history that might have some interest or importance within a broader cultural or intellectual landscape that actually thought these things as weapons of war. Francis Englefield, who had been an important member of Mary Tudor's court and that eventually became an exile and lived the rest of his life in Spain, once said that because Catholics lacked arms and tools of force, their most important, potent weapons were paper and pen. And so a book like Sanders was thought in those terms as a weapon of sorts to sort of deepen this desire among Catholic rulers to really deal with the Protestant problem. So there was a 1585 moment where the stars aligned, rumors of a potential armada reached their ears. In France, there's a religious war going on, Catholics seem to be winning. And so they very purposely put that out there. And I would say they kind of hurriedly did it too. I think they were really trying to capitalize on this moment. So they published this book in 1585 and they realized that perhaps it wasn't the most coherent text and it needed amendment. And they published an expanded version in 1586. Again, with the same, I think, end goals, but with a more expanded narrative to make it more historically coherent. And so, yes, I think it's part of that specific moment and the specific opening that they see for the absorption of this text. And it's important because we have to think also, apart from that immediate perceived need, this is really the text, the dominant book, in the Catholic imagination emerging from them. This is the book that all Catholic historians, theologians, polemicists, are using to talk about England. And so it has this kind of immediate, but also this long-term influence. The book is translated into Spanish, into German. There are various forms that emerge. And that was the intended consequence. They wanted to instill in the reader this horrific image of England and the kind of horrors of the acceptance or permissiveness of heretical Protestant rule and behaviors. It was meant to instill fear in the reader.
2: Now, Sander isn't the only work that's being written or deployed at this time. Tell me a bit about some of the post-Armada printed acts of persuasion, to use your lovely phrase, by English Catholics living in Spain, because the Armada's come and gone. It hasn't worked out as they intended. So what do they hope for next?
3: Well, they always hope for a future America. so that's, in a way, their end game. The most important book, and a book that really doesn't get as much attention as it should, is Robert Persons' A Conference about the succession to the Crown of England, which has two ideas embedded in it. One is that, essentially, the succession belongs to the Spanish monarch. By means of a very complex mm-hmm. genealogical discussion, essentially the argument is that Philip II or his daughter, Isabel de Eugenia, are the proper successors to the throne upon Elizabeth's death. So that's one part of the argument, which makes everyone uncomfortable. It makes clearly Elizabeth unhappy. It makes James VI in Scotland very unhappy because he sees himself as the successor to the throne. The other aspect of that text that's fascinating is this idea of an elective monarchy. This idea that, in fact, the state, the monarchy, has historically been instituted by the people. And because of this, the people, perhaps through a representative body, parliament, has the right to select its monarch and even deviate from the succession. And this is particularly necessary when there is a division between the faith of the monarch and the faith of the subject. So in essence, I think the book is to an extent trying to throw everything at the wall and to see what sticks, either because of the genealogical argument, England becomes Catholic after Elizabeth's death, or because Catholics who are the dominant oppressed force in England, select essentially a Spanish king. And so this, it has been argued that for the latter part of Elizabeth's reign, the political world kind of lives in a Personian moment, that everyone is obsessed with this book because of the challenges it poses to the regime, because of the instability that it poses to the political nation. And Elizabethans are obsessed with refuting this.
2: So in other words, if we don't get a grasp on this book, we don't really start to understand why in that last decade of Elizabeth's life, the question of succession is even more heightened And Elizabeth's suspicions are even more exacerbated towards those who might come and claim the throne from her than it was even before the Armada. And we all know in the early part of Elizabeth's reign, everyone's thinking about the succession. But you're saying that the effect of Person's book is to really exacerbate that.
3: Yes, I think so. So the succession was the dominant thread during Elizabeth's reign because she refused to marry, because she didn't have a successor, etc., But this book kind of crystallized all those fears and ensured that it became a source of heightened consternation. So this is one occasion which I think a book really has a fundamental impact. It brings things to the surface that are just bubbling right underneath. And so that in a way is why the politics of that period is very much framed by this book and person's efforts, absolutely.
2: And the other work that you talk about is Persons' book where he helps Catholics imagine a post-Elizabeth world. And I find this fascinating because, you know, they say you can't do something unless you can first imagine it. So do you think he actually does manage to change the mindset towards thinking about what could be?
3: So Persons writes the Memorial for the Reformation of England. It's a manuscript that circulates pretty broadly It seems we have a lot of copies that remain. And absolutely, in it, he is able to imagine this world post-Armada. And it speaks to kind of the depth of belief that this was not only a possibility, but that this would be a reality, because God would will it so. And so, yes, I think that he has all these elements that very much are coherent with the times, so he is not imagining this weird political, sort of national thing that is simply completely far-fetched and beyond the realm of reality. He's using all these tropes and these ideas and these suppositions that are present. They're in the air, they're in the water. And one of the important things that he says is that essentially state and the church have to be even more interlaced than had been until then. And so that you need priests essentially within every facet of politics, local and in London. And so I think he sees that as the key. He sees that as the way to ensure that Catholicism never falls again, and he sees that as a real plausible path. So it is not that these people are imagining something that is, again, far-fetched or beyond the realm of contemporary reason. They're just imagining a world in which secularization, the rise of politicians is turned back, essentially.
2: So... Do you think that this idea that they had that books were weapons is actually true? That actually these print salvos were making substantial attacks on English and Spanish mindsets with a view to changing the future?
3: Yes, I think they obviously failed, (laughs) but I do think that they were very much organizing debates and in fact creating spaces for Protestant fears of Catholic aggression to be valid in many ways. I definitely think that within the Spanish context, because they were publishing in Spanish and in English, the imaginary, the kind of imagined England as a horrific space for Catholic oppression, was something created by English Catholics and then really deeply absorbed. And then from the Elizabethan regime's perspective, using the conference by persons as an example, again, it very much influenced how they responded and how people thought about politics and religion. So we have a relatively small number of men on the continent writing fairly important books, inserting themselves in important religious and political discussions. And so in that sense, the books were very successful.
2: There's one more question I want to ask you, because your work seems to me to illustrate just how important it is when we're writing about the early modern period, to move beyond national boundaries. Why have you taken this approach? Why do you think it matters so much to have this transnational method when it comes to writing history in this period?
3: Well, with the exiles, it became embedded in these different places. To a certain extent, they were their own kind of community, but within the context of relative weakness, right? There were relatively few of them. They needed support from local communities and from local political authorities. And so it just didn't make sense to treat them solely as, let's say, English Catholics in their own sphere, their own networks. You had to insert them, I think, in these broader frameworks. And then when I looked at that, it became clear that these books were influential and they were printed and reprinted and disseminated across Europe and smuggled into England. And so the story kind of told itself. It was a story you couldn't really tell or shouldn't tell without sort of taking this broader framework, this transnationalism into account. And I think one of the things it is typical to write within a national... Framework, in part because there's a certain amount of ease in that. You can tell a coherent story. It speaks to modern ideas of what a nation is. But then, as now, there's a conversation that goes on. No island is an island. There's just movement of ideas, of people. And this becomes obviously a fundamental aspect of modern culture, but it's really being deepened in the 15th, 16th century. And so you kind of have to deal with that aspect. So one of the things I find really interesting about working with these English Catholic exiles is that you kind of have to tell that story and that it becomes clear how important that story is. And it becomes clear that a set of exiles, again relatively few in number, can be really influential, can be really important to a broader history. So the other thing I try to argue against is the idea that, well, you have to have numbers. You have to have lots of people involved in creating historical change or inserting themselves into a historical moment and dynamic where I don't think that's true. You can have a relatively small group of people because of their political and religious connections and because of the tools at their disposal, mainly print, they can become really, really important in this transnational way.
2: I think it's so fascinating because it gives us a totally different perspective on very important questions about what's happening in Spain, but also in what's happening in England. And I think that because it it didn't work, because in the end, England wasn't turned back to Rome, that this has been overlooked. And yet what you're giving us is a counterfactual and also actually a factual, a look at really these powerful narratives that were infusing English and Spanish thought at the time, that if you just keep your focus on what's going on within national borders, it's so easy to overlook.
3: Right, and I think the other aspect here along the lines of what you're saying is that people at the time were not certain of the outcomes. Clearly, we look back and we see that, you know, Catholicism lost, it became a minority, but that was not certain in the period that we're discussing. It's not a light switch phenomenon, one day Henry VIII came along and suddenly everyone became Protestant. It's not the case that there was any kind of religious consensus during Elizabeth I's reign, and so there was a kind of plausibility to what they were doing. They saw that they believed that there were a lot of Catholics. And in fact, there were a good number of Catholics and even powerful ones in England. And the Elizabethan regime was aware of this and the Elizabethan regime knew that they had powerful backers. And so their intense fear was based on this sense of uncertainty. And so again, looking back, we can say clearly these guys were the losers in this narrative, but they were really fighting this battle that seemed plausible to all sides, I think, of the issue. And so I think that's a really important aspect of thinking about Catholic culture in England in this period, that they were influential and partly were influential because people didn't know how it would turn out.
2: Well, thank you, Professor Dominguez, for giving us an insight into this moment where everything was hanging in the balance and helping us imagine the possibility that it might have all turned out differently. If listeners would like to know more about this and delve deep into some of these interesting ideas that are being discussed, I do urge you to pick up a copy of Professor Dominguez's book, which is called Radicals in Exile english catholic books during the reign of philip ii i say brandishing it it's also a beautiful book and is very clearly written and very humorously written actually i found that your writing is a real joy and so whilst we're going into these topics which are in depth and considered you're doing so with a lightness of touch that i found very enjoyable so thank you for that no thank you And thank you so much for coming on Not Just the Tudors. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
3: It's been wonderful. Thank you.
2: And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at HistoryHit.com.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen